to episode 355 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I am joined today by Logan Kinney and Astor Gilbert. Thanks for joining. Hello. Yeah, thanks for inviting me back. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, we had to fight off some fan mail and, and some, you know, complaints, but, you know, Logan, we'll look past it. You know, there was a lot of feelings after the Scooby-Doo episode. I know. I cause controversy every time I come on the show. Oh, and Beef. Beef is here as well. Oh, yeah. Yes, this, this is my cat, Beef, for those watching instead of listening. This is why you have to join the Patreon. You have to watch the you have to watch the stream and you get to see Beef, who is the most comfortable cat I've ever seen in my life. He is so chill. Yeah, he, he is. It's absolutely unbelievable how relaxed that cat looks. Well, on this episode, we got movies that we saw this week, uh, as always, in part one. And then in part two, we will be continuing our feel-good queer movie series with 1996's The Birdcage, um, which might be the most feel-good queer movie of the series, to be honest. There's nothing There's nothing more feel-good, I feel like, than The Birdcage. Um, but let's go ahead and jump into movies that we saw this week. We're going to kick it off with a couple new releases from Netflix. The first one, I feel like it's been the it's been talked about a good amount on the uh, on the internet and that is the new I guess however you want to describe it, comedy special movie. I feel like it's kind of a movie. Yeah, um, yeah by Bo Burnham titled Inside. Um, for those who are unfamiliar with it, um, you have Bo Burnham who's comedian actor filmmaker a lot of different things um but he filmed this comedy special um from his i'll just you know his guest house <laughs> from his guest house uh during quarantine um and so he filmed just steadily throughout the over the past year during the covid pandemic um and it's about a little under 90 minutes um it's kind of a, a series of songs um not really any bits but songs him kind of just talking a little uh pretty candidly about how he is feeling throughout the pandemic um a lot of discussions about his mental health um and then he has songs about like you know white women instagram so it's it's a little bit of a mix of everything um i caught it uh, a couple days ago, I'm not, I'll be honest, I'm not super, I'm not a, a, a giant Bo Burnham person. I've seen a couple of his specials um, prior to this, like Make Happy and a few others. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a big, you know, I'm not a giant Bo, I really probably became most familiar with him whenever eighth grade came out and that whole tour of things uh, was kind of going on. Um, but I kind of was curious about this just because I have, while I'm not, I'll be honest, not super into what pandemic art is going to look like. You know, we're going to go through this period of like a bunch of uh, movies and television shows and just things in general that are going to be trying to like come to terms with the pandemic in a artful way. I'm not super excited for that, but I also kind of just have a morbid curiosity to see how people uh, specifically you know, artists and, and comedians and people like Bo Burnham are going to be processing it. Um, I'll say on this, it's a very, it's, it's a very inventive and creative movie. It's, you know, like the, the, the ways that he works the camera and the lights and just, and just the editing, like all of that is, is, is very intuitive and creative and interesting. Um, but I'm sure we'll get into it. I don't know necessarily if the whole 
thesis at large necessarily worked for me. You know, a lot of a lot of his humor and a lot of the stuff in this is very self-reflexive. He's very aware of like, uh, or at least he tells us he's very aware of like his privilege, um, being a straight white man uh, who's also you know wealthy because he has a guest home that he's shooting this in um but i don't know a lot of that stuff didn't necessarily land for me logan i know you saw this as well what did you make of bo burnham's inside well it's interesting because i would have considered myself a very very big bo burnham fan until like a couple years ago i remember i got really into him uh when make happy came out and 2016 was like like maybe the most explicit my depression's ever been. And Make Happy was the thing that I felt most understood what I was going through. Like it was the kind of art I latched on to as like a dependency when I was struggling. Um, and because of that, that kind of symbiotic relationship with it, it means I can't really look at it objectively. Um, I rewatched it uh, just before I watched Inside and... There's still bits that really work for me, but it's one of those specials that because of the severe weight it had on my life, it makes me kind of miserable to watch or to think about um, because it, it reminds me of how terrible I felt. Instead of it reminding me of like coming through it and getting stronger and coping, it reminds me of I watched this like five times in June of 2016 because I wanted to die. And now, I wa- so I watched Make Happy again before this to kind of get myself in the zone of Bo Burnham and see if this new special could resonate me resonate with me differently after like the five years that has passed for him, five years that has passed for me. And I watched Inside, and the thing that really disappointed me the most about it is that it's the same shit as the last special. Um, it follows the exact same structure. Um, it opens with a series of disconnected bits songs about his white privilege, songs about certain uh, either musical genres or certain like types of people on the internet um, going on for way too long. Um, he's constantly self-reflexive about his own, like you mentioned, he's always like reflecting on the problematic nature of his, some of his jokes. He's always like doubling back on them as soon as making them. Um, and that leads into after about 45 minutes to an hour of kind of self-reflective comedy leading into an existential stretch where not many jokes are told, where the music gets more emotional, where he gets more confrontational with depression and with his own feelings of suicidal thoughts. And it ends with a kind of melancholic and and ambiguous ending um, that should hopefully resonate with the audience. But like, that's the thing is that like when I consider how much I've changed over the last five years, I look at inside and I don't see any difference. I don't see our work that is reinventive, that is a sign of an artist's growth or transformation. And I don't see the kind of exceedingly personal and intimate uh, connection with an audience that I felt he did have with Make Happy. I feel that the, the artifice of personal art that always comes into it when you're making your own project because you always have to think, how will this play to a larger audience? How will this play on camera? How can I amplify it to increase emotional resonance, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the best works of personal art either get at the truth so concretely or use artifice in a way that amplifies uh, the emotion on display. And Bro Barnum's insight is kind of caught in the middle. It's trying to reach for the truth, but it's constantly... Uh, torn between like 
capturing the real thoughts of his suicidal urges, like talking to the camera straight or using his overwhelmingly creative yet distracting techniques of a filmmaker um, that kind of take away from the poignancy of his words. I, I feel like he's kind of trapped in a cycle of wanting to be more progressive as a filmmaker and wanting to be more vulnerable as an artist. And instead he just kind of does a bunch of cool uh, DIY tricks while regurgitating his old material. Um, I, I found it very, I didn't care about it very much. I didn't find it very funny, which I think is always a problem when you're watching a stand-up special. Yeah. Where, comedy special. It's, it's, <laughs> it's part of the thing. And I don't know, like, I, I think this is a kind of project that must have been very, very cathartic for him to make. And I am glad that he got to make it. But it's one of those projects, like, that I, I just, I, I don't, I, it's, it feels very harsh to say I don't buy it. Because I think that, that that feels very mean, because it clearly does mean something to him. But I don't think that he's conveying what he thinks he is or what he's hoping to with it. No, I, I, I feel the same way. And I, and I, I felt bad kind of. I felt you know bad to a degree, like saying that because you don't want to necessarily discount somebody's mental health struggle, and I don't think that's what's happening. But I, I think it's more of that's it comes from like that's more of an indictment on like um, just the whole like society as a whole's uh, handling of mental health. That like because I've seen um, this is really resonating strongly on like TikTok and places like that, and I think it's because. Um, you know, people who are more engaged on TikTok are are excited to see kind of like that open dialogue or somebody just kind of say that whether it's about mental health or, you know, the different the different bits that you like the songs that you mentioned that he has, you know, he has the one with the sock puppet where he's talking about like the, um, you know, how we view history and society as a whole. And like, that was one that I was like, no, I don't, you know, necessarily disagree with anything you're saying. And like, it's, I guess there's something kind of interesting on the level that somebody is saying this, um, you know, in a mass produced product. Um, but I don't know, like at the end of the, there's still just so many things to, to your point that like kind of get in the way of that, you know, it's a, it's on Netflix and I don't know if you hung around for the very end, but it, it provides you like a like, you know, if you're struggling with like mental health thoughts or if you're struggling with like thoughts of suicide or things like that, like here's a, a hotline and here's some resources. And then you click and then and I, this was something that I didn't uh, initially know, but somebody flagged on Twitter. Yeah, I saw it too. Yeah, but like you click on it and it's resources like like mental health resources, but it's all it's all like filtered through other Netflix programs. And so there's just something like so disingenuous of that. And I feel like so that's why, you know, again, kind of to what you were talking about, like, yes, he's like kind of permeating like a zeitgeist to a degree. But at the same time, there it's almost like um it's almost like he doesn't he's he's struggling with like the two things and he never really kind of comes to a a, you know a conclusion or a or a he never comes to you know head with anything it's like well it's an interesting point to bring up because he probably made a lot of money off of this and not saying the artist shouldn't make money but with something like this he probably sold it for like a million, maybe. Like he's a very—I don't know, obviously. But like he, like a, a, a more money than any of us will ever see. He probably made from this. Whereas I think that if it was 
as vulnerable as it's professed to be, I think it might have been, he might have just put on his YouTube or something like that. Just as something that just, I needed to get this out in the world. And instead of it feeling like a very personal document, at times it does feel like more like a product on the algorithm. Um, but with the thing with TikTok is that I think that every generation has the make happy it needs because I think that there's this kind of resonance um, with um, with inside that I had with make happy like five years ago. Um, and that's great. And I'm glad that it means something to a lot of people. And I'm not trying to like dispel anyone's impact that they've had with it or his own impact in creating it. But I do think that the fact that it's having the exact same reactions as I did five years ago isn't a great sign of artistic development. I think that he should be That's a good point. trying to do more than just the same old shit, but longer and sadder and with less thesis and with less jokes. And like the, like the thing is like the sock puppet, what I liked about that, that gag is that there was like a joke at the end of it where he was like torturing the sock puppet. Like he was like, even after it said all that things, he did like the little thing of like torturing the sock puppet puppet. And it was dumb, but it was like dumb in a way that, Oh, it's a comedy special. It's but it, I'm fine with it being dumb. Like it was, it was the only time where I actually felt like, Oh, he's trying to make people laugh with this. Um, but I, I don't know. I think that, cause obviously like as a white person, like there's always that kind of desire to like, prove yourself as like understanding and, and knowing things and wanting to show that like, we're not one of the bad ones, you know? Sure. And like, I get it. That's an impulse. I think all of us have had in different ways, some embarrassing, hopefully some not as embarrassing, but I think his is embarrassing. I think he's embarrassing about it. Um, I, I think that he's trying so hard to seem different than the status quo uh, when he is a part of the status quo. Not just because he's white, not just because he's straight, but he's rich and he's a, he's like he's a he's an icon, he's a figure, and he has a role to play in it. And while I do really commend him for bringing up things in history, I think that his constant reliance on like the like within Make Happy did the straight white man song, and in this he brings up like white women's Instagram, like you mentioned, and his own whiteness. I don't think that the work is actually deconstructing him as a white person and what it means to be a white person with his amount of privilege i think he goes like on the surface with it but then he goes deeper with other elements i don't think he coalesces any of his thesis together like i i think it's disjointed i i i'm not saying that i really want to see what bo burnham's thoughts on institutional racism are yeah i feel like (laughs) if he wanted to to bring up his own whiteness he could have maybe went a bit further and confronted the fact that maybe he has a career in comedy because of his status which i don't think he does um and i, I don't know like if you're going to be self-reflexive commit to it like go completely in and not just do the same old shit i don't know like i watched it and like i gave it like a thumbs up i gave it like a three and a heart on Letterbox. but truthfully i by the time it was like halfway through i was kind of fucking sick of it and i just kind of wanted it to end um well there you go on netflix you can watch bo burnham's inside i don't know if you want to after this discussion but it's there um we're gonna continue on the netflix train though and talk about the latest snyder piece um i know i know both of y'all saw it would somebody like to give us a little insight into army of the dead yeah i can jump in um i uh i really love the movie i think um I'm a Snyder fan. I guess I should 
out, out myself in in that uh, in that regard. But um, I think what, what was really interesting is uh, I really love Zack Snyder's DC trilogy. I think it's really amazing. Um, but I'm very excited to see where Snyder goes outside of being constrained by um, other people's intellectual property and having to deal with the kind of studio control over that stuff. So as I was watching Army of the Dead, <clears throat> excuse me, um, at, on the one hand, it felt like one of his slightest works, like not, I guess, frivolous or light, while at the same time being one of his darkest works and kind of most emotionally resonant. And I think the um, the kind of dichotomy between these two registers makes the film very fascinating to me. And it seems full circle going back to the style of Dawn of the Dead, which I know Snyder said he had written the script for Army of the Dead around the same time that he was making Army of the Dead. And when he made the Netflix deal, the Netflix producer was like, yeah, you got that script, let's make it. Um, because with his remake of Dawn of the Dead, there is this kind of like tonal incoherent whiplash, like on some parts, it's really ironic, like almost irony poisoned and cynical and crass. But then in, in other moments, it's really sincere and earnest and somewhat devastating when certain characters die. But when other characters die, it's like a joke or a punchline. And at first I thought that was a fault, like, ah, he doesn't know how to like modulate his tones. But with Army of the Dead, it seems more like, yeah, he's he's working through this kind of thematic element where life is simultaneously um, a joke, but also really endearing and um, earnest. And so uh, there was a lot in the film, and I've only seen it once, I should say. Mo all the other Snyder films I've seen at least two or three times, so I have more articulate thoughts on them. But with Army of the Dead, I think taking like Snyder's basic theme in almost all of his movies is a group of people um, that are knowingly facing down annihilation. And then it's about psychologically and emotionally how they handle that pressure to deal with this kind of annihilation. And I thought it was really interesting in this film where it's much more based on kind of like the, um, the hazardous working conditions that people do to make ends meet. Um, you know, like they're all kind of pressured into doing this risky mission to make money for their families or um, to reconcile some past uh, uh, thing that they're trying to do. So they all put, it, put themselves in harm's way in order to not just like greedily make money, although that's part of it too, right? Let's, let's get that money. Um, but, but the motivation is often like, yeah, this could like help my daughter or this can set up this family or this can help this family get out of this like refugee concentration camp. Um, and so they all put themselves in harm's way. And I think the way Snyder utilizes that and plays with that is really interesting. Um, I also just thought it's really fun. So like uh, the intro, the opening montage sequence, which many people have said is the only good part of the film or the best part of the film. I understand why a lot of people praise that and maybe don't like the rest of the film because that sequence is incredible. He kind of takes what he did with the opening of the Watchmen and plays with that style in a, in a much more, I think, free form and fluid way. Like, I don't mean to say like, this is the film of a free man. Cause there's, you know, there's, there's stuff in it, but he does, he does seem either unhinged or untethered by a lot of the constraints that have shaped his other films. And um, I'll stop there. So I'm not talking too much. Um, I'd love to hear Logan's thoughts on it, but uh, yeah, I, I, I really love the film and I can't wait to revisit it. Yeah, um, I, I think it's very interesting that you brought up Dawn of the Dead because I actually do think the Army of the Dead is basically him fixing the problems with Dawn of the Dead 
in a lot of the ways. I think it's like, cause I, I, I like Donna did a lot. I think it, it's a very good, I'm not actually, I'm a big Romero fan. I'm not a biggest fan of Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Um, I'm a much, I much prefer Night of the Living Dead to Dawn. Um, wild. That's wild <laughs> to me, Logan. <laughs> I, 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 I don't quite vibe with, with the original Dawn's like ambiance and vibe. I don't quite get into it. That's the whole movie. So yeah, <laughs> it's just something. It's something. If you don't really connect with the with the vibes, you struggle to get out of it. Um, but like the 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 same. Like I think if Zack Snyder remade Night of the Living Dead, it, I don't know if it go too well for him. But I think with Dawn, he found like a vessel for him to bring out like all of his like garish impulses and like his frenetic style and his like wild swinging ambition. Uh, to a project, like you mentioned, it's kind of modulates between tones. But the thing that really didn't work for me at Dawn of the Dead when I first saw it is the ending, which is so suddenly bleak and pessimistic and just lacks any tangible hope whatsoever. That, like, when I saw it when I was younger, I didn't like it. Um, I didn't like how it concluded because it ended with, like, a modicum of hope and then immediately shatters it for everyone, just completely brutally. And in Army of the Dead, uh, spoilers... In case you're st- st- spoilers, um, it, it's the same thing. Basically, there's a modicum of hope, and then everything's fucked again. Um, there's going to be desolation. There's going to be more death. There's going to be more apocalypse. More people are going to die. The sacrifices you've seen on screen, they don't really mean anything in the long term because they're going to die anyway. Um, that's that's basically the ostensible conclusion of army that and what i find really interesting is not necessarily the balance between the kind of lightheartedness and the emotion but the sincere emotion with the more nihilistic self-destructive aspects of the film because it's it's i think it balances them very well but it's in certain moments like for example the scene uh with dave batista and his former love interest they have this beautiful moment of connection like where they acknowledge the past and maybe see hope for the future. And then in the next moment, a zombie comes out of an elevator and snaps her neck completely. And in Dawn of the Dead, I think that would have come across as unnecessarily shocking and borderline cruel. But in Army, the balance of sincere emotion with that cruelty, I think makes it work. Um, And I think it's very much benefited by the fact that he's working with Dave Bautista, who is maybe like he's he is the most like sweetheart human being I've ever seen in my life. Like he's a giant 260 pound teddy bear. And the the way that he composes himself in any moment of like sadness with just unabashed sobbing. You feel his like his chokes in the back of his throat. You see his tears like the tears watering in his eyes. You feel the pain in every inch of him. There's no like suppression of his emotion. The seeing his reaction, I think, helps benefit Snyder's more emotional impulses alongside the bleakness. Um, and I think that's most uh, apparent in the last like five minutes where he gets that majorly emotional and perfect sequence with his daughter, which is obviously very, very emotional considering the real life circumstances of Zack Snyder and his, his late daughter, Autumn. Um, but then it cuts to the basically like with Dawn of the Dead, the post it's not really post credits but it, it kind of functions as the epilogue uh where it shows that even though they've nuked las vegas someone has left with a zombie bite they're heading into mexico city it's all fucked it doesn't matter and i, I think that he's a much more complete filmmaker now 
and that it works. And I think it also works because at this stage of my life, I think I'm more open to bleakness that still cares about people. Like it might be, everything might be fucked and you might have sacrificed everything for nothing, but you get this like beautiful moment with your daughter before everything happens and starts all over again. And I don't know. I think, I think in a time of like, chaos and it feels almost apocalyptic our own lives there's something kind of weirdly comforting about someone being like yeah everything's fucking fucked let's shoot a bunch of guns blow zombies up and live the best we can with the people we care about until it's all gone and like i don't know like even just like in the more like casual reactions like the reactions between the the interaction between omari hardwick's character and the sexy german safecracker dieter who is my favorite uh, supporting performance of the year. Uh, I love him so much. And I can't wait to see that romantic prequel he directed with the same character, uh, which is coming out either this year or next year, which I can't wait to see. Um, But I don't know. I think that this is a very complete film from him that balances a lot of his impulses, both aesthetically and thematically. And I just, I think it's very fun. I think it's very heartbreaking. I think it's very, very bleak. A lot bleaker than I think a lot of people are giving it credit for. And I, I don't know. I just, I loved it. And I hope Dave Bautista uh, gets all the best roles with all the best directors for the rest of his career. Because he's a fucking mega talent. I, I completely agree with um, Logan, with what you're saying about Dave Bautista. And I think it, it speaks to like, you know, there's lots of things I don't think Snyder gets credit for. But one of them is he has a lot of very understated emotional performances in his films. Um, but a lot of people that, you know, detractors, people that don't like Snyder or simply use Snyder as like kind of a low hanging fruit, uh, punching bag. I'm not here to convert them. If you don't like his movies, fine. Um, but, um, I think like, because his films are so bombastic and they're filled with this kind of pastiche of different genres and cultural references and iconography, and it's all like in your face and, and the tonal changes constantly. I think what gets lost is that in nearly all of his films, there, there are these very delicate performances of some of his leads and Dave Batista's is incredible. It's a lot like, I think Affleck in the, in the Batman role in uh, justice league and, and in Batman for Superman or, or, or even, um, um, uh, the performance of Superman, um, very, very understated in his films. And I think like Batista really carries this movie, um, while it has this ensemble cast, um, there's just something in his, his facial expressions, his kind of, uh, 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 nuanced, um, reactions to the things that are happening to him that is really incredible. And I think Batista is really like, um, I guess he already is an action star, but I'm really looking forward to hopefully a renaissance of Dave Batista led action films, because I think more so than other like wrestlers that become action stars, he has a much better range and control over performances than say like The Rock. I'm a big fan of John Cena's films, um, but I, I do think Batista has something that a lot of these other performers don't. And Snyder seems to really pull that out in a way that like the MCU films that Batista's in, you know, he's kind of a stock character, although he's he's funny in those films. But um, that was something in Army of the Dead that I thought was just really incredible. Um, and <clears throat> excuse me, I also just to layer on some other stuff that I, I really loved in the film is I really liked that um, it. it in terms of like its structure and how it's working, it seemed like Snyder was doing more of what Romero did in Land of the Dead, which I think is um, a really incredible. I like um, 
Romero, I, I'm a Romero fan. I, I probably like his Dawn of the Dead much more than Snyder's, to be honest. But it's, uh, <laughs> That's probably the reasonable take. But um, Day of the Dead is my favorite, but Land of the Dead is great as well. And um, Army of the Dead really feels like this kind of amalgamation of Romero's Dawn of the Dead mixed with um, James Cameron's Aliens. And a, a lot of Army of the Dead felt like Aliens. Um, only instead of aliens, they're zombies, which is fine by me because that's such a kind of iconic plot for an action sci-fi horror movie that, of course, yeah, remake it and make it cool, um, which is something I'm I'm really excited to go back and kind of um, watch it again. With uh, with Batista, because like I'm a big wrestling fan. I think this is not a secret to anyone that knows me or has seen my Twitter or read anything I've written for cinematary.com. I bring it up a lot. Um, and Batista's always proved himself, he always proved himself as a much more, uh, he's, he's a much more diverse performer than I think a lot of people in, initially thought him to be. There's a promo he caught against uh, Rey Mysterio back in 2009 when he turned a uh, heel, when he turned bad against Rey. And like, he is paranoid he's like sweating he is like almost like on the verge of crying as like he can't he's he's like so convinced that his friend has betrayed him that he needs to betray him first and there's this kind of rabid intensity to him like he's a guard dog like being let off his leash but there's such emotional uh heartbreak in his in his posture and his in his eyes and his in his words even that it makes the the breakup heartbreaking to witness, even though you know he's gonna murder Rey Mysterio. It, there's something like he's 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 so he's so talented at that kind of vulnerability. And the thing about his like his massive size is it often feels like he's like he 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 he, he, also, he almost feels like Bruce Banner slash the Hulk to me. Like he's trapped in this bigger body. Like he never feels fully comfortable within this kind of like muscle bound physique, even though he's had it for 20 years or more, like the way he conveys it, like he's always like, he's this like quiet little mouse of a man. And, but yeah, in moments of anger, he has the power and the strength to like beat any opponent, any obstacle. And I think that Zack Snyder fully understands uh, that kind of balance between the power of his body and the kind of more quiet nature of his mind. I think only Blade Runner 2049 got that as well. Because um, that gets the same thing of he's this brute powerhouse. He could knock people through walls. But he's just like a quiet guy who wants to garden on his own. And, and I think that what um, what Blade Runner achieves in 10 minutes, Army of the Dead extends to a feature length. Which is why I think it's the best performance he's given so far as an actor. If I could quickly pull together some of these threads that I, I just want to mention is like I think part of what makes Snyder so good of a uh, of a director for Batista specifically is that Snyder is a very physical director and he's great at physicality and I think this also gets dismissed a lot in the stock criticisms because post Dawn of the Dead his films have mostly been CGI green screen like heavy effects films but even in films like Three Hundred. Um, and uh, Watchmen, but especially in um, uh, uh, in Army of the Dead, he's really great at these kind of spatial relations as they relate to the physical body and the movement of the physical body, which I think is partly why um, he uses slow motion so well. Another thing, like people like to dunk on that, but I think it's great, especially in the um, 
in the, in the DC trilogy, but with with Batista in um, Army of the Dead, I think Snyder's um, ability to kind of think spatially, whether he's working with real sets and locations or this kind of totally green screen world, he's really great at orienting that for the films that he makes. And I think that's one of the interesting things with Dawn of the Dead is I, I don't think his Dawn of the Dead, he has a fully developed style yet. It feels a little bit more reliant on like um, what Paul W.S. Anderson was doing with the first Resident Evil film. And that's not a knock. I love his Dawn of the Dead, but um, I'd really love to see what he does with a low budget film because he is so good at that physicality and to see it completely removed from like a, a CGI slugfest might be very interesting. Um, his superhero films, uh, the DC films in particular, I think he's, there's a really great sense of physical groundedness in these movies. Uh, the last thing I'll say, because my favorite Zack Snyder film is actually Man of Steel, because I think it gets that balance between like the spatial where like the spatial resonance that Superman finds, whether it's he's touching the ice on the ground or like being smashed through a building, you feel like the entire like broad spectrum of physical feeling through uh, a character that feels so much and at all times, like whether like not necessarily pain, but like that kind of significance of weight around them, like he is constantly overwhelmed and burdened by his brain, by his perceptions, by everything around them. And you feel that like pain and that discomfort. And it makes the moments where he like touches the ground and feels like joy and is able to like flow through the air. I think Zack Snyder is maybe the only director I've ever seen who actually captures what it might feel like to fly. Like like watching him like watching Superman go through the sky. I never feel like I'm watching just a guy in CG with a cape going Oh, I feel like I'm watching a man leap off of the ground and take flight. And I think that kind of like awe-inspiring uh, connection he has to the body and the mind as well is something that really resonates with me. Not just like as an autistic person, but just as someone who enjoys a lot of intense physicality, which is why I love wrestling so much. Um, Zack Snyder, uh, maybe make a wrestling movie at some point. I think I'd like to see that. I think that'd be very interesting. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, I think the army that does kind of capture that mostly through the lens of Batista. Um, but I think, I think people like Hardwick, uh, they get their moments of like spatial awareness as well and physicality. But I would, I would honestly, I would love to see, uh, Batista become like the De Niro to Scorsese and Batista just in everything he makes from now on. Like, I think that'd be great. I think he'd get great work out of him. Well, Dave Batista is clearly not going to go uh, hang out with Marvel anymore because he doesn't seem super thrilled with them. <laughs> good, I mean, good for him. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they'll pay him a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, well, Army of the Dead is also on Netflix. So you can check it out there. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back talking about the Birdcage after this. Hey, Cemetery listeners, Andrew here. At the midpoint of this week's episode, I want to direct you to some of the non-podcasty things we have to offer. First, if you're a fan of what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. For $5 a month, you get three things. A shout-out at the end of every episode, the opportunity to choose a movie we cover on the show, and our Patreon-exclusive podcast, Film Theory and Chill, in which we look at a piece of theory once a month, deconstruct it, and then just chill out, talking about whatever else we have going on. All Patreon supporters 
support goes solely to paying our writers for their reviews that go up on our website every Monday. Also, at the bottom of Cinematary.com, you can sign up for our free newsletter. Every Sunday, we send out an email with the latest podcast episode, Patreon content, and written reviews. This is perfect for those who want to keep tabs on what's happening, but might be too busy to see the posts when they go up. Before I go, one more quick thing. The easiest thing you can do to support us is to give Cinematary a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. This is quick, free, easy, and we will read your review out on the show once we get it. To recap, consider donating to our Patreon, sign up for the free newsletter, and please give us a rating and review. Thanks for listening. Let's get back to the show. with part two of episode 355 of Cinematary. In this part, we will be continuing our feel-good queer movie series with 1996's The Birdcage. Directed by Mike Nichols from a script by Elaine May, the film stars Robin Williams, Nathan Lane, Gene Hackman, Diane Weist, Dan Futterman, uh, Calista Fockhart, and uh, Hank Azaria. Uh, it's a remake of the classic French farce La Cage à Follet. Uh, and it's about engaged couple Val Goldman and Barbara Keeley who shakily introduce their future in-laws. Val's father, Armand, a gay Miami drag club owner, pretends to be straight and attempts to hide his relationship with Albert, his life partner in the club's flamboyant star attraction, so as to please Barbara's father, controversial Republican senator Kevin Keeley. When Nichols saw the original movie in 1978, he thought it would make a great American movie about family. From the beginning, it was planned to be the first on-screen collaboration for him and his former comedy partner, Elaine May. Quote, we've never done a movie from first to last together, he said. This is the project we've wanted to do for 15 years because we knew from the first that it was a timeless comedy with a terrific plot and a wonderful ending. We went through the story many times before Elaine wrote it, and it was exciting to remember the joy of just being funny together. We bring out the best in each other. Initially, Steve Martin was going to play Armand with Robin Williams playing Albert, but scheduling conflicts on Martin's end prevented that. Uh, on picking Robin Williams for the role, Nichols said, quote, It goes without saying that Robin is a wonderful actor, and the story required someone with Robin's unlimited resources at the center of it. What I wanted in Armand was a kind of suppressed hysteria, someone who could appear perfectly straight and ordinary, but with a little something just under the surface that he can't completely control. Robin played that brilliantly. He's funny all the way through, but funny in a controlled way. 
On picking Nathan Lane for the role of Albert, Nichols said, quote, Nathan is brilliant and hilarious and he can keep up with Robin. No easy feat. You can see him thinking, which is the mark of a fine movie actor. He made everything about Albert very real and still very funny. Nathan throws the drag aspect of the character away for the most part. It was more about creating a whole person. At the heart of it was the partnership of Robin and Nathan. They loved each other and it was great to see. Hank Azaria was originally going to just play Albert Stresser, but had his role expand as the production went on. At the time, at the same time as uh, he was filming his role in The Birdcage, he was also filming his role in Michael Mann's Heat, which I just like the dissonance of Heat and Birdcage, which is nice. Um, three songs were uh, for the movie were written by Stephen Sondheim, uh, and they were adapted and arranged for the film by composer J- Jonathan Tunick. Uh, the song that Albert rehearses during the sequence with the gum-chewing dancer is entitled Little Dream. It was written specifically for use in the film. Albert's first uh, song as Starina is Can That, that Boy Foxtrot, cut from Sondheim's Follies. And the song that Armand and Catherine sing and dance to in her office, Love is in the Air, has been in- had been intended as the opening number for the musical funny thing happened on the way to forum in 1962 um and this movie did pretty well at the box office i thought it was interesting it made it grossed 185 million uh worldwide the Washington Post in 1996 said, If the birdcage isn't exactly the Mike Nichols Elaine May movie of our dreams, it does manage to transform what was formerly a campy bit of French fluff into one of the loopiest, most hysterical family values movies ever made. The New York Times in 1996 said, The uh, the birdcage might seem an odd occasion to find Mr. Williams playing things straight, but this is one of his most cohesive and less antic, least antic performances. It's also a mischievously funny one. He does a fine job of integrating gag lines with semi-series acting, all the while modeling a delirious, silky wardrobe with the emphasis on nightmare prints. Mr. Lane in the campier role gives a solid but broad performance without the coy gentility that made Mikhail Sorolla uh, funnier in French, but he had a nice... But he has nice legs and looks good in pearls. Uh, and Roger Ebert, nineteen ninety six, said, "What makes Mike Nichols' version more than just a retread is good casting in the key roles and a wicked screenplay by Elaine May, who keeps the original story but adds little zingers here and there." So on that note, let's talk a little bit about the Birdcage. This is probably the third time that I've seen this. Um, liked it every time. It's a highly enjoyable movie. Um, but Astor, let me start with you. What is uh, what's your um, What's your history with The Birdcage? What do you make of it? Yeah, um, so The Birdcage uh, came out in 1996. I was 10 that year, and I saw it around that time. Not in theaters, but um, whenever it was out on video. So 96, 97, I would have been 10 or 11. And for me, the film is pretty formative. So um, I have a pretty long and rich history of, of loving this film. Um, for me, not to be like too navel-gazy with my own history, but um, I grew up in a pretty isolated rural uh, community um, out in the country. I didn't grow up on a farm, but I grew up surrounded by farms. Um, we had you know, we had terrestrial antenna, which not cable television, um, didn't have the internet until like I was in high school you know, in the early 2000s. Um, And The Birdcage was my introduction to a gay world. 
um, not just gay characters. Um, so like, a, a you know, like a gay, a gay life to live. Um, and so I remember that making a pretty indelible mark on me, apart from it just being very funny and comforting in a strange way. Um, there are also like problematic aspects that we can pick apart and talk about, but, um, seeing that movie at a very young age, it was also along with Tu Wung Fu, Thanks for Everything was, were kind of the first films of like gender fluidity and, um, you know, drag, cross-dressing, um, uh, gender performance. Not that I would have that language as a 10-year-old in rural Michigan in 1996, but the film really introduced that stuff to me. And so it's been a part of my life since then, always kind of coming back to it. It's one of those films that whenever it's on TV, I'll just kind of plop down and watch it wherever it's at. Um, it was, you know, pretty, pretty popular in, in my household, I think because of, um, Robin Williams star power, who being a kid in the 1990s, Robin Williams, along with like Jim Carrey was the universe of like kid movies, but also like, uh, teenage, you know, older, maybe grosser movies that you wanted to see because they were in it. Um, so that really was my introduction to the birdcage. And then of course I watched it again for the millionth time, um, the other day in preparation for this, uh, podcast. But yeah, the long and the short of it is it's, you know, one of those formative movies that indelibly changed me as a child and probably set me on the path of understanding my own sexuality and my own gender because parts of that movie have just lived with me forever. Um, so I think that's that's pretty interesting considering a lot of the people involved in the film um, are straight and not, not gay or not drag uh, performers, although some are. So it's kind of this weird blend of, um, you know, actual gay people and straight people making a movie about gay people. But yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. But yeah, that's kind of my, my history with the film. It's funny that you mentioned, uh, like, if it's on, you'll, like, plop down and just watch it because I saw a quote from... Uh... Paul Thomas Anderson, who said he has two movies he'll do that with. It's The Shining and The Birdcage, which I like. I, I read that the other day, gathering my notes, and I was like, I, and I'm not a huge Paul Thomas Anderson fan, but I was like, all right, all right, PTA. What, what, uh, what, a, what a, like, yeah, and what a combo as well. Um, now, is this something, and this is you know something we can kind of dig into more as we go along, but I feel like this is also a movie that can kind of play play pretty broadly with audiences. I mean, like I said, it made that's why I mentioned it made $185 million worldwide. Like, it did well at the box office. It wasn't like some little, you know, sleeper movie that kind of got uh, pushed over. I mean, for you, like, did, did it play, like, well with your family? Was it, like, was this something, I don't, you know, not necessarily it's, like, generating a conversation after, but it's, like, you know, I don't know what, you know, on your upbringing, but like, was it something that your dad, your mom and whoever could like watch this and still like laugh and enjoy it without kind of getting sucked into, um, I mean, sorry for, for lack of a better word, like the gayness of it. Yeah. So like my family was pretty progressive as working class, like lower working class liberal people. Um, but the, the thing, uh, you know, is a, a lot of open-minded quote unquote progressive people still kind of heavily, police gender and sexuality so it's like we want you to be whoever you are but you know if i acted too kind of faggy you know it was like ah don't act like that so it's this weird kind of contradiction between families kind of supporting me but then also being pretty critical of certain like queer elements so seeing it as a movie um 
my my parents were not very you know they didn't really censor what i saw i was able to see a lot of stuff that my other friends weren't the simpsons was a weird big one where like that was a family ritual in my house was every wednesday wednesday night on fox watching married with children and the simpsons and you know other members of my family and like parents at school were scandalized by that mm, that you know, was like, censored no one... for me yeah i couldn't watch the simpsons <laughs> yeah most people were so I think like seeing that kind of madcap comedy um, with these bankable stars, you know, um, especially Robin Williams, who I think it's really inspired casting having Robin Williams in this film because it brought the gayness of this drag world into households that I don't think it, you know, like, I don't know that anyone in my family knew that Paris is Burning was a film, right? Or wouldn't be able to name, like, Greg Araki or Gus Van Sant until, you know, Goodwill Hunting was made. You know, so even though the 90s by 1996 was, you know, um, still the, the new queer cinema, the 80s was blooming and there's so much great queer cinema from, um, you know, I think The Watermelon Woman is also 1996. You know, that, that's an incredible film. These things were not... Yeah, these were not on our radar because we, you know, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have cable. We went to Blockbuster, and in my small town, there was a place called the Video Barn, which is literally a red <laughs> antique barn filled with VHS tapes. So whatever they could get was kind of what we were exposed to. And so my family, my mom and dad, were both very adventurous film watchers. I don't think they would know the word cinephile. And you know, the kind of most far out filmmaker was probably someone like Woody Allen or or Stanley Kubrick or something like that. You know, the things, excuse me, the things that broke through that were still kind of in but mainstream we would have been exposed to so i think you know any kind of robin williams comedy was you know gold in our household um and also the film is just so charming and warm and also with you know my my parents being kind of dyed in the wool democrats seeing the lampooning of the moral majority which they were really disgusted by in the 80s and 90s you know the jerry falwell type characters who were you know many of these republican senators were you know hypocrites which the film does a really good job of criticizing that stuff and throwing that stuff out there um so with the gene hackman and diane weiss characters um, so I, you know, me being 10 or 11, I, I can't really recall what their initial responses were, but it was part of this continuum of Robin Williams family entertainment that we all loved. Mrs. Doubtfire, um, the nutty professor, uh, toys was a weird one that I was really into that kind of creeped me out. It was, I was fascinated by Jumanji. Like this stuff was just constantly on play and the birdcage, I think because of Robin Williams was just part of that landscape, that ecosystem of, I guess, content, we would call it now, but films that we watched and rewatched and returned to over and over again. Yeah. Okay. No, and that's, and that's why I'm just, I'm kind of interested because it's a, it's a movie that I've watched. I watched it with my, with my youngest brother and my mom and they like enjoyed it. And I wouldn't say that they're like, you know, they're, 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 you know, relatively progressive, probably on the same level as you're describing with your parents. But at the same time, it's not like they're going to actively, um, seek out a movie that has, you know, drag characters and be like, yeah, let's watch this. Like, let's do it. And so, um, it's just, it's kind of always interesting to me just how well this kind of can play, uh, across the board while also kind of keeping true to to kind of its spirit that it's going for as well um logan i'm i'm, I'm interested for you this was your first time watching the birdcage i mean what what were your impressions seeing this for the first time and kind of uh seeing all the the varied performances from from robin williams to nathan lane to hank azaria and on yeah i mean like the reason why i watched the birdcage is because i got messaged and said hey 
doing the birdcage. You want to come on? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll watch the birdcage. So it really is, that is the, the brunt of my experience going in. I've seen plenty of Mike Nichols films, obviously. Um, even like recently, I saw Heartburn, which I didn't really like. But I saw Postcards from the Edge, which I absolutely adored. It's one of the best things I've seen this year. Um, so I was like, um, yeah, I'm, I was in the mood to watch Mike Nichols. Um, I have no real context with uh, the time it came out because I was not alive in 1996. Um, so I have no, uh, I have no comment on how it affected the climate of cinephiles and uh, kind of ro- how Rowan Williams kind of shifted uh, the foundations a little bit with his performance and his inclusion in this narrative. But I can say that um, watching him in this film was a, was a real joy. It's always uh, pleasant for me to see Robin. He always brings very fond associations uh, with me. Uh, like you mentioned, uh, Jim Carrey was my real childhood like obsession when it came to comedy. Like I, I would watch everything Jim Carrey was in. And it wasn't really the same. Robin Williams was a little bit later in life. Um, and by later, I mean like 11 or 12 was when I first started watching the Robin Williams uh, classics. I saw Goodwill Hunting, which really changed me in a lot of ways. Um, but it, I really started appreciating him even more after he passed. Um, so there's still plenty of Robin Williams films I haven't seen. And The Birdcage is maybe the most knowable of my blind spots. And, and it was really, really special to watch him obviously still kind of masterful as a comedian, masterful as a comedic presence, but that kind of, the, the way he's toned down in comparison to practically everyone else around him was a very interesting dynamic. I'd never really seen him play in an outright comedy before because he was so talented as like an outright bombastic improv comedian. Um, so seeing him kind of play, play the more understated of the two uh, between him and Nathan Lane it was very interesting, and I like because I read that he was meant to have the the Nathan Lane part, um, but he requested to get the part he plays now, and I think that's the best call because I think it not only gives a spotlight for him, but it gives a perfect spotlight for Nathan Lane, who is absolutely stupendous in the film and is my favorite part of the movie. Um, the, not just because he's very funny, which he obviously is. He's incredibly, incredibly funny. But we'll, what we'll get into a little bit later is the way that, like, when he starts pretending to be straight and, like, the scene where he comes in in the suit, he looks agonized. Like, he is so – he's desperately trying to perform. And while, while there's, a, there's a gag later on in the scene with, like, the pink uh, stockings he's wearing underneath the suit, the initial bit of his performance is, like, he is so desperate to please – the people that he loves, that he's willing to like suppress his identity again, go back in the closet, even just between his family. And like, he's basically trembling with the, the implications that that creates for him. And it's, it's a really, it really got me emotionally. And especially because he wasn't out at the time while making the birdcage, which might seem a bit wild in hindsight, considering how gay he is in the birdcage. Um, but I think there's like that kind of added poignancy of this is a this is a scene where he gets to balance the idea of actually what it's like to like go back into the closet, and then he gets to fully embrace the drag queen and gay personas that throughout the rest of the film 
following this kind of anguish form, which I really liked. Um, what I read about Hank Azaria as well is that he, his voice is very um, stereotypically gay, uh, very high-pitched, very flamboyant, and he originally conceived a deeper-pitched voice um, while making the character because he was worried about being stereotypical, but he was told by a gay friend that it was more realistic, the high-pitched one, so that's why he went with it. Um, which I, I thought was very funny. And I think he's very, very good in this. I've always liked Hank Azaria as a comedic talent. Uh, I think it's really funny that on his birthday, uh, he worked till 6 a.m. on heat. Then he came right over to work on the birdcage with no sleep. Because um, you'd never guess that he was ever tired or exhausted because he's got such exuberant energy. Um, and I think I think every performance is really great. But I want to, like, quick before we move on to the greater uh, detail of the film, uh, Gene Hackman with Mike Nichols is such an underrated comedic pairing because in Postcards from the Edge, Gene Hackman's in it for about 10 minutes of the overall film. And I would argue that even more than the exceptional work from Streep and McLean, Hackman is the element that really sends Postcards into the next level because he has two fundamentally crucial scenes, one where he's like basically shutting down uh, the Carrie Fisher surrogate for being fucked up and wasting his time and wasting his shot. And his anger is that right balance between hilarious and genuinely like off-putting in the best possible way. And then there's moments where he gets to be like truly kind and compassionate and shows his kind of love and understanding for her, even after all the, tr- the, the trouble that she put him through. Like there's just that there's an understanding of Hackman's like intimate side as well as his comedic chops that I think that a lot of directors didn't really capture when he was still an active performer. And I think Mike Nichols is maybe alongside like Wes Anderson uh, with Raw Tenenbaums is that kind of person that gets that balance of how how funny and how talented Hackman really is as as a comedian. And I think his work, particularly in the second half, is some of the funniest content I've seen in the movie in a long time. I don't tend to laugh at movies much on my own. Like I can find them amusing and I'll be in my head. I'm like, I really like that. or I'll smile. But like, it takes a lot to get me to laugh without someone there, like a full on cackle. Um, Cause I, I guess I'm more of a social animal when it comes to humor. Um, but with, uh, with, with the birdcage with Hackman, there's a gag with Hackman and Nathan Lane about, abortions which i'm sure everyone knows um that when uh when nathan lane responds with the line uh about killing the mothers as well and you just see hackman being like no maybe maybe there's an idea of that like he's like he's almost considering it i just i had to i had to pause the movie because i was laughing so hard that i couldn't really focus like my dad from the other room haired me through the wall because i just i couldn't hold the laughter back um, and I, I don't know. I think it's a it's an ensemble that is perfectly calibrated for everyone doing exactly what you need to do. The jokes are so smart, and it's not just as simplistic as just being like they're gay. But look at how gay they are. They're queering all over the place. Look at these homos. Like you know all that stuff that could have been done. Like I don't know if anyone's seen uh, uh, the I think it's two thousand eight film Sex Drive with James Marsden. Has anyone seen it? Um, and there's like a whole gag that he, basically James Marsden's entire character is that he calls his brother a faggot all the time. And he's just like, you're a fag or you're a homo. And there's a line where he says, look, every guy, 
has has thought about fucking another man, but you've got to suppress that shit down. This is America, goddammit. And that is like, like, and then like he, at the end of the scene, he just goes, oh, you would like that, wouldn't you, you little homo? And he goes like super high pitched, like Hank Azaria or Nathan Lane. And in this, and it just, like, it could have just been as simple as like those kind of obvious, like blatantly homophobic jokes that, are both laughing at and and laughing with like homophobic homophobic people. Um, instead of that, Elaine May, Mike Nichols, and everyone involved understand that these men are very funny, both like in their presentation and in their like relationships. Like they're they're not just funny because they're gay or because they're drag queens. Although that is a part of the reason why they're funny, I think it understands that yes, it is a factor of why it's so easy to laugh with them and laugh at them, but it is not the only reason they're funny. And I think that balance is really important. It's not just like saying, like, I think there's some negative criticism of this movie that I, I think is completely, uh, they, they just didn't watch the movie really at all or didn't really reckon with it. And not saying people can't like it, but I think there's a difference between disliking something and just like making an agenda up for it completely. And I think in this case of the birdcage, this is a movie that is clearly very, very compassionate, even though it's made by a lot, a lot of straight people. And I think that it understands the depth of all of its characters and the performers understand exactly how to do justice to their characters and do justice to the comedy, which is something I think a lot of other actors might not have been able to accomplish. Um, so whoever did the casting for this movie, like, fucking pat yourself on the back. You did a great job. Um, so, yeah, I really, really enjoyed The Birdcage. I think that really is one of the endearing, enduring strengths of the film is that the cast is just phenomenal. Like um, the plot is, you know, pretty basic, doesn't even really matter who cares. It's mostly a gag to get the scenario rolling. And I think one of the things the film does really well, and I, I didn't really notice this until rewatching it, is the um, the characters of the kids played by Dan Futterman and, and Calista Flockhart, uh, they're basically like plot MacGuffins and they don't take up too much space, which is perfect. Like, they're there. They, they feel like fleshed-out characters that are part of the story, but they they never, like, take up too much space, which is great. They just kind of set the ball in motion, and then this amazing cast just kind of takes that ball and runs with it. And I think that's a really smart decision. But, like, every character that comes into play... Like, I, we haven't really talked about um, Christine Baranski, who is amazing... Um, as uh, uh, Dan Futterman's uh, biological mother in the film. And um, just everyone is firing on all cylinders all of the time. And every scene is this interplay between these different performances. And it's just so inspired. And um, I think, uh, Logan, you're absolutely right about Gene Hackman. I think he's one of the great American actors because he can he can move from sinister to goofy in like the same beat almost like he's so good at that and his timing is brilliant and really him as a comedic actor um i think is used to to tremendous effect in in this film so while it really is the robin williams nathan lane show um having these other characters uh, diane weiss is brilliant as well hank azaria is incredible um it, it really is a film that i mean there's other elements too filmmaking elements that i'd love to talk about but really the cast is what makes this film so brilliant well, I was just going to say real quickly to add to the Gene Hackman point, um, I think 
you know what what y'all are describing is best uh, kind of exemplified in the scene where Nathan Lane comes out as the uh, you know faking as the mother, and he you know Gene Hackman's character starts uh, becoming infatuated with her, and then it shifts into the whole where he has the whole thing. Um, uh, where he's talking about like how she's you know not treated right and po- that poor that poor Miss Coleman like just that whole scene where he's just like angry but you're laughing at just the absurdity of like what he's described but he just like has this like deep anger of like I can't believe that they're treating poor Miss Coleman this way and there's just something it's so like he's so angry in that scene that you wouldn't really like think it should be funny but it's so fucking funny like the way he's just describing it the the way he like ignores his wife to flirt with nathan lane is so so like i did not know that nathan lane pretended to be the mother before watching the movie it's like i had no idea that that was going to be what happened so when like so when nathan lane came out as the mother i was like really okay this is very funny. And I didn't see it coming because they, they kept me distracted enough that I wasn't thinking about what was going to happen next. I was just kind of lost in the moment. But what I was going to say a little earlier was that this is this might sound like a weird comparison, um, but the two main actors that like I've, I've always really liked, but I've gained like a new appreciation for in 2021 uh, are Gene Hackman and Warren Beatty. Um, uh, I've been watching a lot of Warren Beatty films recently, and there's something about him that, like, he's handsome, obviously, like, very beautiful man, but he's handsome in a way that you look at him and it could either be completely hollow or completely sad, like, devastating. It's like a Don Draper kind of handsome, where there's either nothing there or whatever is there is just overran by bleakness. Not saying that he's unhappy or hollow in real life. I don't know Warren Beatty, but like as a performer, like that, that's what he's very good at conveying. Like where it's like in shampoo where he's like mostly kind of like dim and stupid and just kind of a horn dog. And then at the end, he's just kind of overwhelmed by his own failings and sadness and melancholy. And I, I feel like watching like him and McCabe and Mrs. Miller or Dick Tracy or the parallax view, all of which I've seen for the first time recently. Bullworth. I have, oh, I'm going to watch Bullworth very real soon. Good one. Oh, um, I can't wait. I'm looking for Bullworth reds and heaven can wait are my next, uh, Beatty experiences. I'm going to rewatch rules. Don't apply because I'm a big fan of when rules don't apply. Um, but like that kind of thing about Warren Beatty is that I always had an impression of him and I always liked him. But that impression deepened as I saw more of his work in a way that, you know, this this might sound very, very simplistic. But I generally think that with it, with most actors, you get a real sense of what their whole thing's about after like three performances. Like not saying that they can't do like great work in like 20 different things. But I think you can get an understanding of what kind of things they're going to give, what kind of dimensions they have, what their strengths are. You can get that pretty, pretty quickly. Like even with like some of the all-time greats, with Beatty and Hackman, there was more than I gave them credit for. There was more than I was expecting when I looked into their filmographies. There was more that challenged and provoked me and subverted my expectations and made me think a lot about them and their strengths and strengths I'd never even really considered before. One one thing to kind of and this this kind of veers us a little bit off, but I think it'll kind of get it dig into a look some of the. Uh, um 
you know, some of the complaints about this movie. But I was thinking about this as we as we kind of de- as the series was developed. Um, you know, with a lot of queer cinema, you, it it feels like, and I think this is one of the reasons why Jesse and Paige really wanted to focus on like the feel good movies. Is you kind of have the like very serious important dramas you know the you know stuff like philadelphia you know the the, usually dealing with like the aids era just things like that where it's very serious it's it's not it's not there to kind of um necessarily entertain but then you also have like the farce movies like last week we talked about but i'm a cheerleader i think um the birdcage fits in that as well you have those ones that are are like the characters are, are are queer but also like we're gonna kind of almost um you know, give you the medicine by making it a little bit more digestible. And so for, for y'all, um, you know, I mean, I guess, do you, like, do you feel like that, like, like there's like, this is able to kind of find a middle ground of those two things without being like one or the other, or, I mean, does, does leaning on that kind of farce inhibit the birdcage at all? Like, do you feel like it's able to kind of present its its very queer message while also being a deeply funny movie that's kind of poking fun at at its characters even though it's doing it in a very loving manner absolutely um i think that well personally i should say that i don't think just because a film has serious subject matter that it is good or important um and that's not to dismiss films that take on heavy subjects i think you know the, what I love about cinema is the diversity and the like full spectrum of human experience and emotion. Um, to to um, uh, circle back to Zack Snyder when we were talking about the tonal shifts in his movies, like I, I I love that about films. But I think there there is this strange attitude I think in certain American intellectual circles that in order for a film to be good, it has to be about a serious subject. And a serious subject is always something heavy. But that means for queer representation in mainstream film, that often means AIDS. It means being murdered by like homophobic violence, Um, you know, uh, uh, the epidemic of trans murders. And for like queer people, um, especially queer people of color and um, poor queer people, like this is an everyday reality. We don't really need to be reminded in in the films all the time that this is like the violence underlying kind of um, social attitudes towards queerness. Um, But I don't think that being um, kind of farcical um, or goofy or satirical is necessarily any less substantive. For me personally, I think it's more about the filmmaking. Like, is this a well-made film? Is this a good film? What are the, you know, how am I evaluating whether it's good or bad? Um, because I think especially in like the Academy Award industrial complex that generates these kind of Oscar bait films, which is often where cisgender and heterosexual people in my life are exposed to queer stories. It's usually through those films. And I often find those films to be really bad, Um, both badly made in terms of like lacking any kind of directorial vision. It didn't seem like there was a passion to make this film. It was just like, ah, conversion therapy. That's a subject that's serious. Let's make a serious film about this. Danish girl. Yeah, and I avoid a lot of those movies for that very reason. It's like, I don't need to be educated on this. Um, so there's this kind of like dual criticism, I guess I'm saying. Like, sometimes those movies aren't even well made, but they're taken more seriously because of the serious subject matter. Um, but also, like, 
you know, uh, just having serious subject matter makes them more substantive, which I don't think is true. So I think a film like The Birdcage is important queer cinema um, or part of the queer conversation because of the world that it shows. And I think the um, not only like drag culture or just having a, a, a normal gay couple that lives together and loves each other and is tender with each other and also has spats and marital disagreements. That was earth shattering for me when I saw that in 1996 or 97. I had never seen that before. And, you know, there were always gay characters on television, right? There's gay characters on The Simpsons, on Frasier, on Seinfeld, X-Files, all the shit I was watching in the 1990s. Yeah, there were gay characters. Will and Grace didn't come out until the late 90s. Um, but you know, to see that is important. And just because they're not dealing with AIDS or dealing with homophobic violence or, you know, anything doesn't make it less substantive. But I think in having the Gene Hackman character and the moral majority and and this kind of like religious right about family values when the leader of the movement was caught, uh, you know, died while having sex with a with a sex worker and just that kind of rank hypocrisy that we're still seeing today, right? With people like Matt Gates, you know, who is is campaigning in this kind of like Trumpian umbrella of evangelical traditional American values, and he's a, a fucking sex predator. Like he's a disgusting fuck. And so like this hasn't gone away. And so having that represented in this way in the birdcage, along with kind of normalizing just queer lives and, and queer cohabitation and living together, and not that it gets it all right or that there aren't things where it's like, I, I don't know about that, but um, makes it, I think, a meaningful and substantive film. Sorry, I felt like I kind of carried on about that, but if that answers your question, Zach, that's kind of how I feel. <laughs> no, it, no, it does, because I think, and that, uh, you know, that, and that's, that's why I ask it, because it's like... Um, I think that, that, you know, like Logan was describing earlier, you know, Hank Azaria kind of has this very stereotypical gay character voice. Um, but it's a stereotype because there are people who speak like that. And I don't, and, and, and again, kind of what he was, you know, what, what we've been talking about so far with this movie is I think the thing that, that endears it you know, also just being the cast, but I think it goes back to Mike Nichols and, and Elaine May are very generous and tender with like they they care about all of these characters. Like everybody's cared for, and so it's not like there's a punching bag. Like any any character really is a punching bag. There's like a care taken with all these characters, and I think that's kind of the difference that you see with this um, and what we saw last week with But I'm a Cheerleader. Like those are films that like take care of their characters while also making the you know making comedy out of it. Um, and I think that's kind of differentiates this from, you know, name your, your kind of token Oscar queer movie. Uh, yeah. I think what's so important with how we talk about the birdcage is like something that Astomat is about context at the time, like making a movie where like Robin Williams, is one of the biggest stars in the world playing an openly like effeminate gay man, who loves his husband, like his partner, because they're not married, because, you know, at the time, but like his, his life partner, and they have a kid together, and they're happy, and that they, they, they end up like, not having to change themselves permanently for heterosexual, cisgendered culture, they get to live as themselves, and have fun, and be 
enjoy themselves, enjoy their time together, enjoy their space without it being corrupted or killed by the senator. I think there's something really, really hopeful in that for a lot of groupie boys. So, hey, you know, it might be really hard right now, but there is the possibility of like you having a life with your partner and getting to live and have fun and be able to have jokes and just kind of like exist. And I don't know, I think at the time, I think gay communities looked very different in 1996 than they do in like 2021. So like, like a lot of like people in like the queer community right now um, might look at this differently because it's been 25, it's 25 years old. Um, I do not because I think it's very fun and entertaining and, and joyous. I think it's very compassionate and lovely, but I can understand why it might not resonate with like a lot of modern queers who expect like art from 25 years ago to have the exact same societal progress as we have now, which I think is a very stupid way to look at art. But I also, I do get it because after like years of seeing gay stereotypes and like sitcoms, I think you can look at someone like Hank Azaria doing that voice and just immediately default to the worst assumption. Um, but I, I don't know, like I, when I think of the birdcage, like in my own sense, like I, I am queer. I've been queer. I've been out as queer for years. Uh, but it's honestly like I never really connect. I there's only a few like the serious gay movies I've ever really connected to, um, like uh, BPM from a few years ago. I really connected to. I really adored. It made me feel very very joyous about being a queer man. Like I felt really ecstatic after even with even with all the sadness after it ended. I felt like euphoric for being queer. Which is something I've never, I don't really feel very often. Like, sexuality to me is just something I am. It's not something I really think about too often. It's not something that really, it, it comes into account, obviously, due to like societal impersonations or impressions of me. Um, but in my own life, my sexuality is just what it is. And I know that's not the case for a lot of people, but for me, like, I, I, it's just what I am. I don't really, I don't tend to overthink. Like, for example, like I think more about being autistic than I do being bi. Like that's just, I, it comes into my life more often. There's more things I have to adapt because of it. So like when I see something like the birdcage, which is not trying to make a serious issue out of just being queer. It's just like these people are gay and sometimes shit's going to happen because of that. But most of the time they're just fucking happy being themselves and it's fine. And it's just their lives. And I just, that's nice to me. I like that. I like not having to feel like, I don't know, like whenever something like deeply homophobic happens and there's all these people like standing in like all the allies or whatever, like standing like, yes, all the rainbow flags lighting up. Sometimes I feel like, is that the only time I'm supposed to feel like comforted and just being a queer person is when there's like immense tragedy or suffering or like a display of like extravagant wealth or like rainbow capitalism or whatever and i kind of feel more like like the the more time passes instead of becoming more like free with my sexuality i've just become more content of just being like it is what it is i'm bi it doesn't really come into account but like when i see something like the birdcage i'm like fuck yeah this is awesome like it's great fun like you know, we get to be escapades, we get to be fun. Like, I think there's less pressure, especially on queer men, to fulfill traditional masculine roles. 
Uh, I think obviously there is still presence of toxic masculinity within queer men communities, but I think in the case of like Lane and Williams, they have very free reign to interpret masculinity however they choose, whether that's through drag or whether it's like, through Robin Williams. He's very, very gay. He's effeminate, but he's very masculine in his presentation. He has a very rugged mustache. He dresses in very masculine outfits and that those two things never like contradict the other. They're just his presentation as a man, as, as, as a queer man. And I don't know. I think that stuff's really refreshing to see. So in many ways, I think the birdcage is still very progressive in its depiction of queer men, because like, I don't know if I'm given the choice between this and something like Joel Edgerton directing the movie, about how gays are sad or whatever. I don't actually mind that movie too much, but like if I was given the choice, I'd be like, yeah, no, I'm taking the birdcage. Cause it, it makes being gay, being queer, look like it doesn't suck all the time, and it doesn't suck all the time. So I, I, I like the it 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 is both a fantasy in its own way, and it's it, it does kind of capture something very true and very honest about how sometimes happy queer communities are the thing that keep us breathing completely. Um, as we wrap up, any any quick final thoughts on the birdcage before we end the episode? Yeah, I think, um, I guess one quick thing I was thinking about, because Logan talked about this a bit, and I just wanted to throw my throw my thoughts in there, is that, um, you know, I'm not entirely dismissive of contemporary critiques of movies about, you know, the problem of, you know, straight actors playing gay characters or writing gay stories, or the problem of cisgender actors, you know, playing these trans characters, normally for awards and accolades, while there is so many trans and, and gay um uh, actors and also filmmakers, laborers behind the camera that are not getting these jobs. And I think where I see the birdcage kind of falling through the cracks in this contemporary criticism is this belief that like, um, you know, things are progressive, so they're naturally better. So anything made before a certain date is problematic and should be dismissed. And I think there are issues with the film, you know, like Hank Azaria, kind of like an Anthony Quinn playing uh, racially ambiguous characters, you know, playing characters of races like he is not Guatemalan. And maybe that is, um, I think, kind of a problem that he plays a Guatemalan character. But I also think the character is funny. I'm not trying to just dismiss the criticism. But I think, you know, a lot of what Logan said, I, I really agree with in terms of like, what are these characters? How are they portrayed? What are they doing? Um, I would really love to see what some of the um, gay, trans and queer publications of the 1990s, what their film reviews of this film thought, because I'm sure it's a completely different world if you were a member of a gay, an adult person, an adult gay person living a gay life. What did you think of that movie? Because I could totally understand thinking, what is this shit made by like straight people? Um, but, you know, for other people coming to it, I think I don't like to divorce the text from the context and dismiss any criticisms of that. But I do think like what this film does as a text, how it represents these characters, what the world that it depicts and the influence that it has, I don't think can be totally dismissed because Robin Williams wasn't gay playing a gay character. Um, I think when it becomes a kind of black and white criterion, you know, almost like the Bechdel test, you know, pass or fail, does it do this? Nope, it's bad, it's problematic. I think misses a lot, but also like, I'm not going to spend my time trying to convince people 15 years younger than me why they should like this movie from 25 years ago. You're lost if you don't like it. Like, yeah. I th- um, oh, please but, go ahead. Uh, to quickly like uh, go a bit deeper on one of the points, uh, I my argument about like context isn't meant to like 
dismiss any legitimate criticisms of the birdcage as a film or as a, a text uh, within like queer spaces. But I do think it's important to understand that context while taking those criticisms into account. Um, so, for example, if people do have issues, I to be to be perfectly honest, I I don't I don't give a absolute shit about if someone's like gay or straight or bi playing a, a queer character because it's really none of my business. I really don't care. And like like we've seen with people like Lee Pace that come out much later in life, um, like I don't know if they're queer or not. Like you could be, they could be married for thirty years and they could still be bisexual and not tell anyone. I think that the kind of constant pressure for people to come out, or even something like you could be, people could be dismissing Nathan Lane at the time for not being gay, even though he was gay and he just wasn't out yet. I think that that kind of that kind of blatant criticism of like that kind of black and white as you said of if the person that plays this character isn't gay exactly then their performance is problematic and it shouldn't happen and obviously it's not that i think gay actors shouldn't get a chance to play more gay roles of course i do of course i want to see more gay actors get to play gay characters but i also think that it doesn't reduce the possibility of 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 non-gay actors doing very very good work as as gay characters i feel very similarly about um non-autistic actors playing autistic people i really don't give a fuck at all as long as it's good and people care like if, as long as you actually put in effort and try and empathize with the community you, you're an actor if you do your job well enough i can buy it i think it's very different uh if it's like a cisgender man pretending to be a trans woman uh for award success i think it's a very different uh, conversation uh, for reasons that I think Aster probably has much more articulate thoughts than I do, um, but I, I think that I think in this case, uh, I think judging Rod Williams for trying to do his best to bring uh, some more increased awareness onto a community with a very funny performance, just because he wasn't gay when Nathan Lane was gay, uh, is a bit, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a little bit much for me. I think it's a little bit. Uh, redundant. I was going to say that I think like you can hold both things simultaneously, which I think you you have to do with a lot of films, a, a measured critique of of the issues and what is problematic, while also an appreciation of how the text functions and what its what its uh, influence has been. Um, you know, I, I'm thinking the same of like the conversation around Paris is Burning. You know, the the, the criticism that like Jenny Livingston, the filmmaker, is, is a white person going into a black queer space and documenting it. Um, but you know, the the audience and the response to that film is very complex. It's not as simple as like this is a bad movie because a, a white woman made it. Because the film has this legacy and this influence. That is a point of critique, though. That most people that I know who are fans of that film um, understand that and like balance balance that thing out and so i think with the birdcage there definitely is a lot of room to talk about these issues and one that we didn't get to and i know we're almost we're out of time i, I don't want to bring up a whole other conversation but i think the plot point of their shitty son asking them to go into the closet to impress some fucking freak politician is like that's awful fuck this kid but it, it it's like it's it's a really like 
and the the movie that treats sucks. it that way too. Like Robin Williams' initial reaction is like, "It took me twenty years to figure out who I am. I'm not ashamed. Are you?" And I'm like, "Hell yeah!" But then the way that the movie is about like the sacrifices and the pain you put yourself through for someone you love, and then having it all kind of explode at the end while also being this criticism lampooning of conservative hypocrisy, I think is really interesting. But you know that is something where like I can't imagine being an adult gay person, an adult queer person in the 90s and seeing that be like, the fucking plot is that the kid asked them to go into the closet. That is horrifying. And it is kind of horrifying. And I can see as like a straight audience, like just, oh yeah, that's just a funny MacGuffin to get the plot rolling. And it kind of is, but I also don't mean to dismiss that kind of sting. But so I think, you know, texts are much more complex than that. And you can also be critical of something and still enjoy it. And I think what makes the birdcage work is that it is so enjoyable. And there's so many pleasurable comments things about it while around the margins it has some of these things where it's like uh, i i don't know like calista flockhart's what 17 trying to marry a 20 year old like what's going on here but um i don't care that whole that whole that whole that whole orb over there is a little questionable to be yeah, the honest kids, yeah. the kids are the worst part i mean dan futterman looks like he's 35 <laughs> playing 20 i know he he's yeah he's 27 i think yeah <laughs> He is he's, he is like thirty in it like he is he was like thirty while filming, uh something like that. But like I don't know, like personally, not to keep going on, uh, but personally, I do actually think it the the aspect of them like like being asked to go back into the closet and then just completely making a farce out of it completely throughout constantly everything going wrong all the time, getting more and more caricature like as the film progresses until they're just like, fuck it. And they just th- drop the act and they just completely embrace like the outright, like stupendous homos they are is actually, I think that the arc of them like facing a life of being in the closet again and like gloriously rejecting it is very wholesome and very like comforting. I I, I actually, I think it's, I think I can understand like initially it being seen as horrifying to some people but I never really thought of it at all like that way. I thought it's it clearly understands that the kid's a jackass, and that that that, that, that it's stupid for them to actually feel like they need to bring in the woman that just said, "I don't really want this kid, so you can just have them um, as long as you get money. You give me money, and you can have the kid and shit like that." And I, I don't know. I I I find that element. I understand why some people might have a problem with it, but personally, I think it it understands the weight of its premise and it understands how important it is with the premise it has to completely fucking lampoon it like as soon as it's incorporated um so i not not the not that there aren't problems with the birdcage but the more i talk about the birdcage the more inclination i have to defend the birdcage uh which i wasn't expecting completely going into this uh cuz i did i really liked it but now i'm like I want to watch the birdcage again. <laughs> I just saw it like six hours ago, and I'm like, do I, do I, it, the the fucking the tab's still open on my laptop. I might just rewatch the birdcage now. That um, seems to be the endearing. Maybe I am becoming Paul. That's, that, yeah, I was gonna say that. That seems to be the endearing like le- uh, legacy of the birdcage is that if it's gonna be on, you clearly want to just be like, oh, let's see how. Let's watch the part where you know 
Gene Hackman's doing this, or let's watch the part where Robin Williams is is doing the dance. You know, like it just seems to be a uh, a movie that constantly. Well, I was working. That the opening. I know we didn't have time to talk about the technical aspects, but Emmanuel Lubezki's cinematography, the opening shot where it's the helicopter moving into the city, and then the crane shot, and then it seamlessly moves to the um, the Steadicam shot. That opening, it just like pulls you into its world with the slow music and the lights. I love. It's one of my favorite openings to a movie. Um, just the way it pulls you in, and then you can just sit there and be in that world. Their their apartment above the club with the the um, the what is it like the fern wallpaper that I I I love that. Like that's one of my favorite memories from childhood. Is like I want to live in a house that looks like this. <laughs> but but yeah, so it's um, great to rewatch. The production design. I, I I keep having more things to say. I'm so sorry. But the production design in this film is gorgeous. Every every like location, whether it's like Christine Berinsky's like office or their apartment or the club, or even just like outside moments where they're like sitting on the beach or yeah, like say, in, like like they're at that bus stop, you know, late in the film, like the fucking like bus in stop the, in the street, like the street as the credits start rolling. Like it's just it's immaculately designed. And the way that Nichols navigates the frame kind of shows his kind of like strengths of kind of like low key intimate character dramas, like, like particularly Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which incorporates a very small environment perfectly cinematically. I think he does this very well. There's never any doubt that I am watching a capital M movie, even when it's like it's not constantly flashy, it's not set in a bunch of like technical sets the camera isn't zooming in all the time it could it could like there are like like you said with the opening there are some very impressive technical details but i think what is most impressive about the movie is how it uses its vibrant sets and the way the actors are located within them and makes it feel truly cinematic even with just like like minimal like flash to most of it like it's it's hard for me to really describe it it's just this kind of like it's like mike nichols switched on the the genius card that he pulls out 60 percent of the time and he just he delivered yeah it's the really like naturalistic cinematography um that counterbalances the flamboyant sets and the flamboyant performances and i think it just it makes a very winning combination visually just gorgeous to exist in that world which i think is all has always been my attraction since I was 10 or 11. <laughs> well, The Birdcage, I think, is pretty readily available. If, if, if you have not watched this, it's... Um, it's on it's Hulu on a number right of, now. It's on Hulu. It's on a number of other streaming services. So it's pretty available, and it, it's a very, it's a very, very, very breezy two-hour watch. So if you have not watched it after listening to us talk about it for almost an hour, you should probably go and watch that. It's a good, yeah. it's a good movie. I like it. <laughs> well that will wrap up this episode of cinematary you can find us on facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary on twitter and instagram at handle at cinematary and on letterbox at letterbox.com slash cinematary where we post all the uh, movies that we talked about in this episode thank you to our patrons at patreon.com slash cinematary go there if you'd like to uh to support the show thank you to cam chad newsome christina daughtry Corey willingham harry eskin candace sisson ron hayes titus arthur tyler chandler and whitney rio ross thank you so much for your patronage next week we will be continuing our feel good queer movie series with 2017's professor marston and the wonder women so um it's unfortunately this is not a part of the snyderverse in the dc universe you know but it's a whole other thing i I wish i wish there was some kink in there imagine imagine that um 
But until then, thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next week.